Today, as has been mentioned, we begin a new study for our Lord's Day morning services. I've kind of delayed making the official announcement on this study because for a while I was just uncertain about it. This book is absolutely glorious. I've wanted to preach this book for years, maybe even for, for decades. In fact, when I first transitioned into my current role at Harvest back in 2007, I gave consideration to preaching through this book, but I wanted more time to study it, to grow in it. I wanted more miles on my pastoral treadmill, as it were, to understand it a little bit better. Anyway, I've been looking forward to it for a long time, and I'm praying that as we study it together, it will become obvious why we will look forward to it. So would you please turn in your copy for the first time to the book of Romans. It's on page 791 of the Pew Bible that's provided for you. As has been my practice when preaching through books, I'll take the first sermon to study of the, of the study to kind of introduce us to the author and the recipients of the book, of the letter, as it were, to talk to us a little bit about the context and the overall theme of the book. You're going to receive a lot of information this morning, and the goal is that it will encourage all of us to, to take seriously the journey that we are about to begin. We're going to be reading uh, various portions through the, scripture, through the book of Romans this morning. I want us to begin in the very first chapter in verse number 1. Romans chapter 1, verse number 1. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he has promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and to be declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for the obedience to the faith among all the nations for his name. Among whom, all, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. To all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken of throughout all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of the Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making a request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that ye may be established, or we would say encouraged. That is, that I may be comforted together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes, I intended or I purposed to come unto you, but was let hitherto, I've been prevented, that I may have some fruit among you also, even among other Gentiles. I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. So, as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from heaven, revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I'd like to set our course by first of all noting the sheer impact of this epistle that it could have for our congregation. It's indeed a treasure trove of help for us. Donald Barnhouse broadcast 11 years of weekly messages on the book of Romans. That's close to 600 sermons. Martin Lloyd-Jones also preached for years through this beloved epistle. His sermons have been transcribed into commentary that is 14 volumes in length, each being about 400 pages, 5,000 pages of notes from one preacher. A preacher of our modern day, John MacArthur, said it this way, Romans will delight the greatest logician, captivate the mind of the consummate genius, yet it will bring tears to the humblest soul and refreshment to the simplest mind. It will knock you down and then lift you up. It will strip you naked and then clothe you with eternal elegance. Brothers and sisters, we have in front of us a fine jewel, indeed a glorious gift from our God. How should we respond as we begin this, this new journey together? Well, we should pray for God to change us as we go through the study. What a waste it would be if we only come to hear a man stand behind this pulpit and talk about God's Word and remain unchanged. Now, you cannot bring about change to yourself, but you can pray for the Spirit of God to mature you and to grow you in, in a myriad of, of ways as we study. I want to encourage you to dive into the deep end of the study. Immerse your hearts and your soul. Prioritize gathering to learn together. And if you can't be present for one of the, the, one of the, the, the studies, one of the sermons as we go through, then catch up on the recording. You can get it on the, the podcast or on our website. Or we can even make you one of those old-fashioned compact discs with the recording on it. Eight tracks are not available. Some of the teenagers are looking at me, what are you talking about? Wonder what would happen if we each individually committed ourselves to the regular reading of the book of Romans. It takes about one hour to read this epistle. My goal is going to be to read the book every week that I preach the book of Romans. So I'm going to take about 15 minutes on four days of the week and read through portions of Romans, hopefully reading the book each time I preach it. I want to encourage you to read it with an open mind. I want to encourage you to read it from a translation that's reliable, but that you may not be familiar with, uh, a translation that you haven't used regularly to help you understand it even more fully. Uh, there are a few copies of this document at the Welcome Center. If we need more, we can provide more. But it's simply a parallel reading of the book of Romans. It's got the King James on one side and the English Standard Version on another side. Um, and it goes through the book of Romans. If that would be helpful to you, then pick one up. Uh, and read through it uh, from time to time, or maybe even each week. There's also a prayer that's by, uh, by a commentator, Kent Hughes, something that maybe you could pray every time before you read the book of Romans. Friends, this study can have a massive impact on your walk with God. This, this study can have a massive impact on the history of Harvest Bible Church, and that's not hyperbole. I truly believe that history testifies to it. Most of the great revivals and reformations in the history of the, the big church have been directly related to the book of Romans. Martin Luther said this, 
Romans is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. It can never be read or pondered too much. And the more it is dealt with, the more precious it becomes and the better it tastes. The book of Romans. This is going to be one of our longer series. We took a couple of years to go through Mark's gospel. That was back many years ago. A couple of years to go through the book of Acts. I'm not sure how long our series is going to be, but we do hope, and we do hope to finish the series before Ian Gerard graduates from high school. <laughs> it's going to be on most of our Sunday mornings. We'll take breaks for holidays and different guest speakers and other unique opportunities. And then personally, for me, it's just a sobering to think about beginning a new study because I may never be able to preach the book of Romans at Harvest again because there's a lot of other books that we have, have to get to that we need to get to. So I want you to know that I'm committed to giving myself to studying for this series and learning and growing with you. So how do we go about this study? What's the structure of the book of Romans? How can we, how can we dig into it? Well, theologians have discussed this over the years, and there have been different ways and different means that people have, have thought about the structure of the book of Romans. Sinclair Ferguson helpfully writes about five exchanges that, fought, that we find in the book and how those exchanges kind of shape the epistle and the structure of the book of Romans. For instance, the exchange of righteousness and justification are exchanged for unrighteousness and condemnation. We've already considered that in our service this morning. But when you're taking the entire epistle into account, there seem to be six natural divisions that many scholars and students alike come to close agreement on. So I found these to be helpful in my preparation, and those six divisions are going to be the six points of today's sermon, this, today's talk, as we take kind of a flyover view of this letter before we go deeper into chapter one next Lord's Day. The author, uh, the human writer, was the Apostle Paul. And next Lord's Day, we'll give some extended time to considering his life story and his role in church history. But it's important that we understand that Paul was a stranger to the church of Rome. Uh, we, he, he hasn't been there yet. He's writing to them having not been there yet. and So this was not one of the churches that Paul had planted. We're not exactly sure who founded the church at Rome. It could be possible that there were people who were Jews who were at Pentecost, you remember back to Acts, who were converted and they returned to Rome and began meeting together. Seems like the most likely situation. We do know that both Jews and Gentiles were parts of this early church in Rome. It seems most likely that Paul was probably in the city of Corinth when he wrote this letter, and it was probably penned on his third missionary journey near the end of his life, around AD 57, that he wrote it. What is the theme? What is the major theme of the book of Romans? Well, the word God is used 153 times. When you compare it to zero in the book of Esther, you see that God is a big theme in the book of Romans. Law is mentioned 74 times, and, and Christ's name is mentioned 65 times. Some have put forward the idea that it was written to address the fate of Paul's own people, the Jews, or that Paul wrote this to diffuse any tension that might be present between Jews and Gentiles, or that Paul wrote it to, to unify Roman Christians around the law-free but Old Testament-affirming gospel. Paul addresses Israel's, uh, Israel and God's plan in this letter. Paul shows pastoral concern for the Roman Christians by clarifying their own understanding 
of the gospel. But we also see that Paul uses this book as a way of recruiting prayer support and establishing a partnership with the church at Rome for his future endeavor as he goes on to Spain. We often here at Harvest, we often hear from uh, gospel workers, gospel proclaimers, missionaries, who want to come and present their work at Harvest and to become a gospel partner with Harvest. And the very first thing that we do is look at someone's statement of faith. What do they believe about the Bible? What do they believe about the gospel? In a sense, Paul was doing that to the Church of Rome. He was sending ahead a letter about the gospel, about what he believed, as it were, his statement of faith, so that they may partner with him in a future endeavor. So, partly to encourage believers and in an attempt to make sure that they understood what page he was on theologically and with a desire for a partnership in the advancement of this message, the Apostle Paul writes about the gospel. Martin Luther has called it the clearest gospel of all. The question that every human being must eventually answer is this. How can a person be right with God? The answer to that question is only found in one place, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's just take a fly over this morning of the, of, of the letter to the Romans. First of all, we see in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, the priority of the gospel. We've already read that text. Paul is not writing <coughs> to discuss lesser matters. He's writing to discuss the important matter of the gospel. He tells us in his opening greeting that he has been separated unto the gospel, that he's been set apart for the gospel. His entire life plan has been altered by the gospel. His eternal status has been set by the gospel. His agenda, his concerns, his dreams are all gospel-centric. His motivation for ministry and his ability to deal with difficulties in this life are based on the gospel. The gospel is a top priority for Paul. And he's leading the Roman Christians to so prioritize the good news of Jesus. Look again at verse, verses 16 and 17. <coughs> for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. These two verses serve as the theme for the letter. He teaches us that most importantly, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the message that reverses the curse for sinners. It is the message that when received, moves someone from darkness into his marvelous light. In September of the year 386, 1,600 years ago, a native of North Africa who had been a professor in Italy sat weeping in a friend's garden. And this man was, this former professor was contemplating his own wickedness. While sitting there, he heard a child singing a Latin text and translated, it means, take up and read. Pick it up, take it up and read. An open scroll of the book of Romans was there. So the professor picked it up. The first passage he came to was Romans 1, Romans 13, 13 and 14. 
Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in rioting and drunkenness, not in chambering and wantonness, not in strife and envying, but put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provisions for the flesh to fulfill the lust thereof. He later described his experience in the garden like this. Instantly, as the sentence ended, by a light, as it were, or security infused into my heart, all gloom of doubt vanished away. He was converted by reading the text of Romans chapter 13. That man was Augustine, one of the church's strongest theologians and leaders. Friends, too often, we treat the gospel as if it is powerless or only somewhat powerful. Paul tells us that the gospel is the power of God to salvation. This is why it's to be preached every Lord's Day from this pulpit. This is why the gospel should be spoken of often with your children. This is why our neighbors should be able to see the transformation that is made in our lives. Because the gospel is the power of God for salvation. The gospel, we gather to worship because of the gospel. We evangelize because of the gospel. So I ask you this morning, is the gospel a priority in your life? If so, how is that evidenced? You see, the question that every human being must eventually answer is this. How can a person be right with God? And the answer to that question is found only in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So Paul sets the priority of the gospel in the first 17 verses of the book, but then he moves in chapter 1, verse 18, through chapter 4, verse 25, to the heart of the gospel. And we read much of chapter 3 already in our service, and it clearly teaches us that God is angry with sin, and that every human being is born in sin, and that every human being also chooses to sin. The heart of the gospel is that humans are unrighteous and that God is righteous. These chapters of Romans teach us about God's judging and about God's saving righteousness. He judges and he shows mercy. God judges sin and God shows mercy. But how does one experience the righteousness of God? How can someone experience the mercy of God? Does God just stop being angry about sin? Does he forget all about our sin? Fast forward to chapter number 4 and look at verse number 16 with me. Romans chapter 4, verse 16. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be by grace to the end the promise might be sure to all the seed. Not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of faith of Abraham, who was the father of us all. As it is written, I have made thee a father of many nations, before him whom ye believed, even God, who quickeneth the dead, makes alive the dead, and call those things which be not as though they were, <clears throat> who against hope believed in hope, that he might become the father of many nations, according to that which was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully persuaded that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. And therefore, it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, 
but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. Do you see it? The heart of the gospel is that through faith in Christ, we will not experience God's wrath for our sin, but we will instead experience God's righteousness. Only the gospel can do that. Only grace can give us what is not ours. It is completely undeserved. About a thousand years after Augustine, a Roman Catholic monk was teaching the book of Romans to his students in Germany. He said, Night and day I pondered until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. The monk goes on, he says, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through the open doors into paradise. He realized The righteousness he needed was not his own righteousness, but the righteousness of God, freely given to all who would receive it. This is a story of how Martin Luther came to faith in Jesus Christ through his study of the book of Romans. Brothers and sisters, as we study Romans together in the coming months, let us be reminded over and over again that the righteousness that we need is not our own, but the righteousness of God that he has freely given to us through his Son, Jesus Christ. These reminders will help us shun the superiority that we sometimes feel, that mindset (coughs) that pervades Christianity, that somehow by our displays of spirituality or our church activities that we gain God's approval. These reminders of, of the gospel of God's righteousness or at the heart of the gospel will bring comfort to us when we have gone astray. We'll be reminded that we have forgiveness by God's grace. It is the undeserved good news. It is the undeserved gospel of Jesus Christ. So through chapters 1 through 4, Paul has stated the priority of the gospel. He has explained the gospel in terms of God's wrath and God's righteousness. But what does that yield? The apostle takes the next three chapters to explain the assurance of the gospel. In chapters 5 through 8, we see that he gives hope, he gives comfort, he gives confidence to us. Look at chapter 5, verse number 1. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Believers have peace with God. We're justified by faith and then we have peace with God. This must not be underestimated. Having peace with God means no more attempts on our part in trying to appease God by our own works. Having peace with God means two-way and open communication with Him, a living relationship. Having peace with God gives His children the hope and the comfort and the assurance that enables holy living as children of God. Paul, again, teaches us how this is accomplished through the substitutionary work of Christ. You're in chapter number 5. Look at verse number 6. For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, 
Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commends, or he showed his love toward us. He demonstrated his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, we shall also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then jump down to verse number 18. Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law, ent- moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. Assurance from the gospel comes because it is based on the perfect, complete, and the whole substitutionary work of Jesus. We are assured of our standing with God because we know that Christ is accepted. What Christ did is accepted by God the Father. Then in chapter 6, Paul teaches us of our union with Christ. Every person who has been justified by God is dead to sin and alive together with Christ, alive to God. Look at chapter 6, verse 3. <clears throat> know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. We're united to Christ in his death. We're united to Christ in his resurrection. So Paul says, therefore, because of this assurance, you can live for God. In chapter 6, verse number 9, Knowing that Christ being raised from the dead dieth no more, Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but then he lives, he lives unto God. Here it is. Likewise, reckon, consider you also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Don't let sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, But yield yourselves, submit yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Christians are called to live within the reality of their new status, being alive to God. And then is what is perhaps the most, one of the most succinct statements declaring the assurance that the gospel provides, we find it in chapter number 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And all God's people say,
Amen. No condemnation. Condemnation has been removed for all of us who are in Christ Jesus. That's the hope. That's the assurance of the gospel. No other message of good news in this world can compare to what we read in Romans chapter 8, verse number 1. You might get good news this week. You might read a headline and you think, wow, that's surprising. That's good news. Or you might go to the doctor and you might get a diagnosis and you think, wow, that's good news. You might step on the scales and say, oh, wow, that's good news. Those donuts didn't affect me as I thought they would. That's good news. We might get good news this week. We might interpret something as being good news. But there is nothing that can compare to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the unmatched gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the best news. It's the goodest of the good news. Friends, the true gospel provides true hope, eternal assurance, because there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. In the year 386, Augustine was converted after reading Romans. A thousand years later, Luther was converted via the truths that he read in Romans. And then centuries later, a minister in the Church of England was confused about the meaning of the gospel. And he was looking for understanding on salvation. We can say that he was looking for assurance, a fuller understanding. One day, this minister of the, in the Church of England was uh, reading Martin Luther's preface to Luther's writings on Romans. And this minister in the Church of England writes this way. About a quarter before nine, while Luther was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt that I did trust in Christ, in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given to me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That minister was John Wesley. Friend, when I pray for you, when I pray through the, the list each week of people who attend Harvest, one of my prayers for you is that you will grow in your understanding of the gospel, that you will have assurance and confidence and hope that the gospel gives, that you will not be frozen with doubts, but that you will be regularly reminded that though your sins are many, His mercy is more. That you will be reminded there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I pray that you will be reminded that out of, out of any good news that you may receive in this world, there's a gospel that supersedes its all, all of it. It's the unmatched gospel of Jesus Christ. The question that every human being must face, must answer, is how can a person be right with God? And the answer to that is found only in the gospel of Jesus. There's an assurance that comes from the gospel. No more wondering, united, resurrected, assured. But that may bring up a question. How about the Jewish people? Can the gospel work for all people? And Paul uses chapters 9, 10, and 11 to give to us a defense of the gospel. This is a highly theological section of the book the apostle deals with the doctrines of God's sovereignty and God's election in regards to our salvation. 
The subject is blatantly addressed in chapter 9, verse number 13, when Paul quotes the Old Testament and God says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Well, what does that mean? How does Israel's unbelief factor into all of this? And then in the 10th chapter, Paul teaches about the message of salvation being for all. So fast forward to chapter number 10 and look at verse number 9 with me. Paul kind of summarizes and says in chapter 10, verse 9, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, thou shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For the heart of man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And verse number 13 says, for whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Chapter 11 continues to explain salvation, specifically how how the Gentiles are grafted in and further addresses the details of, of Israel's own salvation. And Paul doesn't ignore, as we, as we get to this section, Paul, we'll see that Paul doesn't ignore the challenge of understanding God's ways. It's almost as if Paul lays it out there for us, what we know, and he says, come, behold this wondrous mystery of the gospel. The section ends, the end of chapter 11, with a summary that, comes in the form of a doxology. Find it for me and follow along in chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it should be recompensed unto him again. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, there are elements of God's character that our mind can't fully grasp. There are parts of salvation that remain mysterious to us. And at the end of the day, this wondrous mystery points us to the glory of our God. Friend, if you're here today and you've gathered with us today and you've never called upon the name of the Lord to be saved, you can do that right now. You can call upon Jesus and place your faith in what he did for you at the cross when he shed his blood to cover your sins. As we come to the 12th chapter, we hit a major pivot point in the letter. Paul turns from exposition towards exhortation. The letter gets much more practical, and chapter 12 begins with with a transitional word, Therefore, I beseech you, therefore. And based on all that's been written in the previous 11 chapters, a Christ follower should live in a a way that gives evidence to God's grace. So the Apostle Paul uses chapters 12 through 15 to talk about the transforming power of the gospel. He says in chapter 12, verse 1, I beseech you, I exhort you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service or your, your, your way of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul has spent 11 chapters telling us all about God's mercies. God's mercies are the basis for living in a way that is consistent with God's word. There's a call to not be conformed to this world, but rather to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. One person put it this way. In short, 
Paul proclaims the possibility of a new kind of service to God because of the sacrificial death of Jesus and its transforming implications. Brothers and sisters, you'll never be able to transform your own life, but the gospel can bring about that transformation in your life by God's grace. The gospel has a transformational power for us personally. But the transformational power of the gospel is not limited to you and to me. Paul closes out the book, chapter 15 and through chapter 16, by talking about the advancements of the gospel. He closes out this letter by reminding us that he's a minister to the Gentiles. That's his mission. He plans a trip to Spain and he hopes to visit the church in Rome on the way to Spain. And now, today, some 2,000 years later, we have seen how the good news didn't stop in Spain, but it continued to go forward. It continues to go forward today. The gospel is not standing still. The gospel is not inactive. Jesus promised that he was going to build his church, that nothing could, could withstand it, not even the gates of hell, and has continued to go even today. Friend, there is good reason for you to speak of the good news to your family and friends who are not yet Christ followers. There is good reason for you to aggressively invest your financial resources in the proclamation of the gospel through our gospel partners. There is good reason for you to pray for unreached people groups around the world. And that reason is the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. His kingdom cannot fail. No message can reconcile sinners to their holy God other than the gospel of Jesus Christ. No message can bring revival and reformation personally, corporately, or even nationally other than the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no hope for dealing with the hardships of our life's journey. And there is no hope for eternity outside the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is truly hope for all Jews and for all Gentiles who understand this message and call upon the name of the Lord. There is promise of a changed life that comes as a result of keeping this message central in our lives. And there is a guarantee that this message will continue to advance to the uttermost parts of the earth until Jesus comes back for us. My friends, this is the message of Romans. Romans is all about the undeserved, the unmatched, and the unstoppable gospel of Jesus Christ. So come and let us behold this wondrous mystery. Invest your time and your energy and your family into studying this gospel together. Pray for God to do something wonderful in your own soul, in your own heart, in your family's heart. Pray for God to do something wonderful to revive Harvest Bible Church. Pray for God to even do something bigger than Harvest and to go beyond to our community and to the uttermost parts of the world for God to send revival even to our own nation. My prayer is that God would richly bless you and this congregation in ways that we have never seen Him do before as a result of our personal and corporate study into this book. May it ever be so to the praise of His glorious grace. Let's bow our heads.